Well, we're coming tonight to the end of our journey together, but certainly not the end of your journey. We trust that for many, it is a new, fresh beginning for you. We started Sunday morning again, that nameless woman, and the water jar that she brought, a picture of her soul, empty and dry, and that thirst-quenching encounter with Christ, turning from her substitutes and embracing the genuine article, the love, the life, the grace, the mercy of the Lord. So exciting to have seen many of you in these days also tasting living water for the first time or the first time in a while. Let me ask this question, and I'm I'm very sincere. How many of you would say tonight you feel closer to God than you did on Sunday morning? How many would say that? My goodness, so many hands in the room. Glory to God. Now, let me ask you one more question. How many of you would say that over the last four days, God has either revealed to you or reminded you that there is one, at least one specific thing He wants to change in your life? How many would say, very, very good, very encouraging. Now, let me help you understand where you are. You are at a place of conviction. You're at a place of awareness, of desire. You're aware of what needs to change. You've been experiencing the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. You're not home yet, all right? Where we need to get you is to the place of consistent obedience. To get from the place of conviction and desire to the place of consistent obedience. Now, Many of you have been at this place before, conviction, desire, awareness. You say, God has reminded me before. I've said before it's going to be different. I've, I've said we're going to change things, but it didn't last. So how do we get you from the place of awareness, of conviction, of desire, to the place of consistent obedience? You're going to need help. You're going to need help. You will not get there on your own Thankfully, God has given us a helper, a helper in the person of the Holy Spirit. Turn with me to John chapter 7 tonight. John chapter 7. Again, in your workbook, page 14. We're going to start in John. We're going to look at other texts in John and then other texts in Scripture as they relate to the person of the Holy Spirit. Here's our thirst truth tonight. God has given us the Holy Spirit to help us obey His commands and live in His will. He's given us the Holy Spirit to help us obey His commands and to live in His will. Now, I've been around a while, pastored a lot of folks, different kinds of churches. It's been my observation that at times, God's people get a little spooked by the person of the Holy Spirit. All right? Uh, What do you mean by that, Greg? You know, I can easily relate to God the Father. I have a Father. I am a Father. I I can understand God the Son. He took upon Himself uh, human uh, flesh and appearance. But the person of the Holy Spirit sometimes seems a little vague or general to us. And so tonight, I want to help introduce some of you or reintroduce others of you to the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And underscore this by saying again, you will not get to the place of consistent life change without the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. 
John chapter 7. We'll go all the way down to verse 37. John 7, 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, capital S, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. All right, pause. Let me give you a little background into the text so you'll understand the invitation of Jesus here. Last day of the feast, the great day. Now what feast was this? This was called the Feast of Tabernacles. You know, we talked the other night how the people of God, the Hebrew people, spent time in the wilderness between Egypt and the promised land and those years in the wilderness, how God led them and protected them and provided for them. So one of the feasts they would observe each year was to remember their ancestors living in the wilderness, but more importantly, how God took care of them. And God had a very creative way of doing this. He said, I want you to build in front of your house, outside, a little shack, a booth, a tabernacle, a tent-like structure, a lean-to, just like your ancestors live in tents all those years in the wilderness. And then for a few days, I want you to move out and live in that little structure, remembering again how God provided for His people back during those wilderness years. So, We're told by John it's the last day of the great feast. Now, let me tell you how that day would begin for the Jews. The priests would march down to the pool of Siloam. They would have these golden pitchers, and they would fill them full of water. And then they would parade back to the temple, and the people would line the streets, and they'd be blowing trumpets and great celebration. And when they got to the temple, they would take those pitchers of water and pour them out on the altar. Now, here's what they were remembering, how in the wilderness, when they did not have anything to drink, and they cried out to God, and God said to Moses, now take your rod and strike the rock, and water came forth. So they're remembering what God did. Now, it's at this very moment that Jesus stands and proclaims in a public invitation, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me. He's not going to find satisfaction. He's not going to find satisfaction in the dead ritualism that's going on over there. He says, let him come to me. Let him come to me. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Remember Sunday morning we talked about living water. That woman who came to the well, Jesus said, if you knew who I was, you'd ask me for living water. Isn't that interesting? We start with living water. We're ending tonight again on living water. Now, in verse 39, John gives us some commentary. This he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. The Spirit had not been poured out, yet that comes on the day of Pentecost. As yet the Spirit had not been given, Christ had not yet been glorified. It's following his resurrection on that beautiful day of Pentecost that God flows out, uh, pours out His Spirit to empower His church, to empower His people. All right, still in John chapter 14. Now, even though we're moving just a few chapters ahead, we're walking through months of Jesus' earthly life and ministry. We're fast-forwarding to the last night of His earthly ministry. 
He and his disciples have gathered to celebrate that Passover meal. That's another one of the feasts. And it's here that he initiates what we call the Lord's Supper. From about John 13 to John 18, all of those chapters are dedicated to these final hours that Jesus has with his disciples. These are his final instructions to them before his crucifixion and resurrection. Now, interestingly, a major theme in that extended teaching is the person and work of the Holy Spirit. That's what he wanted to leave ringing in their ears, the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. You see it in John 14, starting at verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now, just taking this passage, and again, what Jesus is doing in this passage, he's introducing the coming work of the Holy Spirit to his disciples. So, let's just hit pause. I don't want to assume we're all on the same page regarding the person and work of the Holy Spirit. I'm sure your pastor's taught. It's going to be review for a many, but we're on a journey together. Well, number one, he is God. He is God. The Greek language, the language in which the Bible is written, the New Testament anyway, is a very precise language. Jesus said, I will send you another helper. Now, in the original language, there are two words that could both be translated another. One word would be translated another different than me. The other is another exactly like me. That's the word that Jesus chose. I'm sending you a helper exactly like me. Everything that the Father is, everything the Son is, the Holy Spirit is. He has all the aspects and faculties of personality and personhood. He's a person. He's the third person of the Godhead. As we love the Father, as we love the Son, so we love and worship the Holy Spirit. God is our Father. Jesus is our Lord. The Holy Spirit is our helper. Each have an indispensable role to play in our salvation and our sanctification. Number two, he is God on the inside. By that I mean on the inside of you. Again, Jesus said he has been with you. He will be in you. Now, in that statement there in verse 17, we have one of the clear distinctions between Old Testament living and New Testament living. The Holy Spirit's been around for all eternity. The opening verses of Genesis mention his role in creation. But in the Old Testament, his work was in and among the people of God, coming upon them, empowering them for certain tasks. But look what Jesus is saying. Because of what I'm going to do for you, where is he going to be? He's going to be in you. He's going to take up residence in you. He's going to be living in you, and that's going to make a huge difference. Oh, I can almost hear the frustration in Paul's voice, his poor, messed-up Corinthian congregation. Can you just hear the frustration? Do you not know that you are God's temple, that God's Spirit dwells in you? That's what makes the difference. Now, be careful with this phrase. Hey, 
I'm just human. Because it's not true. If you're a born-again child of God, you're not just human. You're a human being who is indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God. And that's what makes all the difference, my friend. He's God. He's God on the inside. He's God our helper. He's God our helper. God has names and titles by which we know and worship him, but also names and titles that reveal to us different aspects of his nature and personhood. Jesus says, I'm sending to you another helper, the spirit of truth. The word helper, it's a compound word, it's a beautiful word. It literally describes someone who comes alongside to help. Someone who comes alongside to help. We know that well-known parable of the Good Samaritan. Here's the Jewish man, beat up, bloodied, laying by the side of the road, dying. His Jewish brother stepping over him, you know, so that they don't get assaulted as well. And then the lowly Samaritan comes and gets off his donkey and bandages him, loads him on the donkey, takes him to the end. Now watch. That man was helpless on the road. He needed a helper. He needed a a helper. The Holy Spirit is our helper. Outside of His helping work, we are helpless. I met Pastor Steve in Waterloo, Illinois. I listened to Pastor Steve's story. As a pastor, I came into this week praying that God would bless our church family. Little did I know He had something to say to me. During an event in our home on Monday, God showed me I had not been the kind of husband and father he would want me to be. I had allowed my service to my church to enslave me, and my family suffered as a result. So working through confession and repentance and many tears, I committed my schedule to God, asking him to help me to husband my wife and to father my children. I can't be the husband and father God's called me to be without the help of the Holy Spirit. You can't be the wife and the mother. You can't be the pastor, the deacon, the elder, the Sunday school teacher. You can't be the church member. You can't be salt and light out there without the helping ministry of the Holy Spirit. Let me just touch on some of the ways that he helps us. And I'm going to blow through these quick But just again to give you a sense of the scope of how he helps. Well, number one, he convicts you of sin, John 16, 8. The work of the Holy Spirit actually begins in your life before salvation. He's the one who opens your heart to the reality of God, the person of God, the forgiveness of God. He helps us to have an awareness of our sin, of our neediness, of our lostness, of our guilt and shame and condemnation. That's all the work of the Holy Spirit initially in the heart of a person as God is drawing us to himself. I was leading a conference in Hopkinsville, Kentucky. It was one evening after the service. I was walking through the church out the back door to my trailer, and I passed a Sunday school room, and there was an older man, I found out later, 81, sitting in there by himself, obviously distraught. And I just stopped and I said, sir, can I pray with you? And he said, please. And I said, well, before I pray, tell me your story so I know how to pray. And he said, this week God has begun to convict me that I'm not saved. I said, really? Tell me your story. He said, well, I had a godly mother, and uh, she was very good to take me to church on Sunday mornings. 
Well, an evangelist came to our church. We had a revival, and the evangelist was preaching, and my mother took me. And one night during the invitation, she looked down at me, and she said, now's your time. Go down there and get saved. And he says, I, I didn't really want to, but she was persistent. She said, now's your time. Go down there and get saved. And he said, I walked an aisle. I prayed a prayer. I got baptized. And then he described to me the next 70 years of rampant alcoholism, serial adultery, a life completely void of the life of God. And he looked at me and he said, I'm not sure I was ever truly saved. And I said, you know, we can do something about that. I said, are you repenting tonight of your sin? Are you willing to acknowledge your sin? Are you willing to repent and turn from that sin? Are you willing to let Jesus be the Lord of your life? And I had the privilege of getting on my knees and watching an 81-year-old man, man give his life to Christ. Now, you can give God the glory. And by the way, the end of that story, a couple days later, we're in our truck driving down the road to the next church, and I get a text from that pastor. Hey, I wanted you to know, I just officiated a wedding ceremony in my study. He'd been living with a gal, and now they were getting married. So there was, again, fruit of salvation. Now, I want you to hear my heart. I don't question his mother's sincerity. I don't question that, but I do question her wisdom. A little coaching tip for parents. It's the unique work of the Holy Spirit to convict the heart. We can't do that, all right? We pray. And I, here's what I'm telling you. If you will pray, if you will put Christ on display in your home by living out the faith, if you will expose them to the gospel, they will see it. And in God's timing, in God's way, he'll bring them to himself. It's not up to you. All right, number two, he provides assurance of salvation. Romans 8, 16 says he witnesses to our spirit. He bears witness to our spirit that we are a child of God. Hear me, you don't have to wish you're going to go to heaven, hope you're going to go to heaven. The Scripture says that we know, that we know, that we know. It's assurance, and that is the work of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord. Verse three, uh, number three, he helps you understand the Bible. He goes on in John 16, 13 to describe how the Holy Spirit leads us and guides us into all truth. You say, Greg, do you understand it all? Oh, no, not even beginning to understand it all. But I'm growing in my understanding. The Holy Spirit is growing me in my understanding of truth and my obedience to His truth. Number four, He guides you as you pray. Ephesians 6, 18 says, pray always in the Spirit in a dependence on the Holy Spirit. Romans 8 says that uh, he knows our weaknesses. He knows at times that we don't know how to pray, and he's even making intercession for us. He produces the character of Christ in you. Galatians 5, and 23, those beautiful fruits of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and all those things, putting the character of Christ on display. Number six, he empowers you to overcome sinful habits. Romans 8, 1 and 2 says, The law of the Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. There is that law of sin and death that wants to continue to pull us down, pull us back in the old ways. But Paul proclaims the law of the Spirit of life has set you free 
there can be freedom. Number seven, it gives you spiritual gifts to serve God and others. There's a number of gifts, and you have at least one of those, probably multiple gifts, where you can help build up the kingdom of God. For some of us, they're speaking gifts. For others, it's more serving gifts, more practical needs that are met. But working together, we're building up the kingdom of God. And then finally, Acts 1-8, he gives you boldness to witness. He gives you boldness to witness. So, that brings us to test number five. Now, you've got to help me. Your book says, am I currently living the life of obedience to God? Scratch that out. That was Monday's test. That's a typo. And in its place, I want you to write the question, am I depending on the Holy Spirit? Am I depending on the Holy Spirit? We've seen that He was given to help us. The question is, are you in a relationship of dependence? Are you seeing the helping work of the Holy Spirit in your life? So, a couple of questions. Number one, am I exhausting all my resources before looking to the Holy Spirit for help in a specific situation? Is it, I've done everything I know to do. Pastor, you've been in these situations. Maybe it's a dire health need. We've done everything we know to do. All we can do now is pray. And I say, maybe we should have prayed first. Right? Hear me, church. Make prayer your first choice, not your last chance, okay? Maybe we should have prayed first. Maybe we should have sought God's will first. Maybe we should have cried out to God first. We actually may have saved ourselves a lot of grief if we'd gone God's way. Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine but be filled with the Spirit. Let's talk about that little phrase, filled with the Spirit. Uh, notice first, it's a command, be filled with the Spirit. Luke 4.1 tells us that Jesus was filled with the Spirit. Acts 4.31 tells us the early church was filled with the Spirit. So we're not doing something strange, extraordinary. We're following the example of Jesus being filled with the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Well, I find it interesting that he contrasts the filling of the Spirit with drunkenness. Why did he pick on the sin of drunkenness? Why not say don't commit murder, be filled with the Spirit? Don't gossip, be filled with the Spirit? Because there's a picture here. There's a sense in which when I'm intoxicated with wine, when I'm under the influence of wine, there's a picture here of being under the influence of of the Spirit. Let me illustrate it like this. Tomorrow's travel day, so that means I'm up early and I'm getting uh, all my stuff put away in my trailer, getting ready to hit the road. So, uh, Glove, travel day, we got some work to do so we can get on the road. Come on, Glove, let's go. Come on. Glove, come on, Glove, let's. You lazy, good for nothing, Glove, are you just going to lay there? Now you say, Greg, you're being silly. I know that. That glove in and of itself has no power, but watch. When that glove is filled, when that glove is filled, now that glove has the power to do what I need it to do. You are as helpless as that glove until you're allowing the filling, the control, the influence of the Holy Spirit. That's interesting, again, when uh, 
You know, when folks are drunk with wine, I'm going to be honest, I've never been drunk. That's not a, a struggle that I've had. That's not one of my issues. You say, Greg, what's your struggle? None of your business. Let's just move on, okay? But I am sorry to admit I've been around some church members who had a little too much to drink. You know what I've, I've noticed? When folks are drunk, they act a little different, right? You know, normally they're kind of quiet. Now they're the life of the party, and normally they're peaceful. And then they're abusive, harsh. Now, as the alcohol produces a negative effect when we're under its influence, watch, the Holy Spirit produces Christ-like effects. And you know what? When you're filled with the Spirit, you start doing some unnatural things like forgiving people, giving sacrificially, pursuing holiness, things that are unnatural to us because now we're under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Number two, am I trusting the Holy Spirit to give me power to overcome sinful attitudes and actions? Am I trusting Him to give me that power to overcome? Galatians 5, 16 commands us to walk by the Spirit. We're to be filled with the Spirit, and we're to walk by the Spirit. Now, there's, there's a word picture here. I'm walking in the Spirit, and we're walking together. See, you can't walk with the Spirit if you're not going in the same direction. If you're not pursuing the will of God, if you're not following God's leadership, then you and the Holy Spirit aren't walking in concert together. There's this implication of a conscious dependence upon the person of the Holy Spirit. You're consciously aware of His presence, and this is something we cultivate over time. And then prayer becomes so very natural to us. All day long, you're shooting what I call these flare prayers. Oh, Lord, I need your help here. Lord, I'm not sure what to do here. I can't tell you, your pastor's, I'm sure, much better than I was as a pastor. I'll be sitting in a counseling session, and someone will just lay out this horrendous problem, and they're looking to me for direction. And what they don't know is I'm sitting there, and I'm saying, Lord, I have no idea. Oh, Lord, I need your help. Oh, Lord, I need your help. And God graciously gives it. Walk by the Spirit. Number three, am I grieving the Holy Spirit by not confessing and forsaking known sins? Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, what do you do when you've been grieved by someone? I don't know about you, but I kind of withdraw emotionally from that person. I don't feel close to that person. We often think about our sin in the context of how it hurts us, how it hurts us, uh, those around us. But hear me, friend, ultimately, your sin affects the Holy Spirit of God. And that's the one that we should be the most concerned about. And there are other reasons, if you're feeling far from God, distant from God, there are other reasons perhaps, but I would always start with, Lord, is there something I've done that's not pleasing to you? Lord, am I grieving your spirit in some way? I met Roberta in Wichita Falls, Texas. 
She wrote, after the Tuesday night service on forgiveness, I felt the Lord calling me to forgive my grandfather for all the things he did to my brother and me when we were children. He was a very verbally abusive and angry man. He's been dead for 20 years, and I had never been able to forgive him until tonight. I was able to forgive him now. Again, we do things that are unnatural, choosing to forgive a man who hurt us so deeply. And you're thinking, Greg, I may need to forgive a dead person. Yeah. Yeah. That's not for their benefit, obviously, but it's for your benefit. Number four, am I quenching the Holy Spirit by by neglecting uh, prayer and time in the Word? Uh, Am I quenching the Holy Spirit. Where does that language come from? 1 Thessalonians 5, 16. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, giving thanks in all circumstances. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. All right, let me give you just a, a little visual here. Now, it's interesting, in Scripture, often God chooses symbols to help us understand His person and His nature. In regards to the Holy Spirit, one of the symbols that we see in Scripture is the symbol of fire. Remember that day of Pentecost? They looked around and they said it was as if there were tongues of fire above each of their heads. So fire becomes a symbol, a picture of the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to quench something? It means to extinguish the fire. It means to put it out. Now watch. When I deprive the flame of the oxygen that feeds it, immediately it begins to dim. Looking back to our text, rejoice always. The Holy Spirit has great freedom in an atmosphere of worship, my friend. And when you're neglecting worship, you're frustrating the work of the Spirit. Pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. That doesn't mean walk around with your head bowed, your eyes closed. You'd run into things. But that conscious awareness, those flare prayers in constant communication with the Lord, give thanks in all circumstances. I don't know about you, but that's tough. Lord, give thanks when I've lost my job. Give thanks when someone doesn't appreciate me or has hurt me. Lord, give thanks for cancer. Lord, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God. I don't want it to go out. There we go. Again, I've given now the Spirit that life-giving oxygen. I've given Him in my life what He needs to be able to lead me as He desires. Last point. Am I allowing the Holy Spirit to lead me? Am I allowing the Holy Spirit to lead me? For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Are you being led by the Spirit of God? Let me illustrate. For parents my age or close to my age, you're going to relate to this illustration. One of the most terrifying moments in the life of a parent is when you get into the passenger seat of the car and you look over at your 15-year-old armed with a learner's permit and you take your first drive with them. You're thinking, 
<laughs> You're thinking it was only a few days ago I was changing your diapers. And now my life is in your hand. Lord, there's got to be another breakdown here somewhere. Now, why do you feel that way? Let's just be honest. We don't trust them. <laughs> Rightfully so. We don't trust them. Now, God says, I need you to move over to the passenger seat. And I need you to let go of the wheel. And I need you to take your foot off the gas. And I need you to let me drive. Now, let's be honest, we're all control freaks, whether we admit it or not. And the last thing we want to do was to feel out of control. Let me say, number one, if you really think you're in control, you're just kidding yourself, okay? You're just kidding yourself. You're not in control of anything. But number two, let me tell you why it's so hard to let go. We don't trust the Lord. You know why we don't trust Him? We don't know Him. If you've spent time with him, if you've known the ways of God, you know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans for good, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And so we trust the Lord. So that brings us to our final life and action moment. Lord, I choose to surrender to you and be continually filled with your thirst-quenching spirit. 